That was good. Now, we've had a great church service so far, and I was sitting over there thinking, Lord, help me don't mess it up. <laughs> you know, that is one of the rarest, most beautiful things that you get to see in church, y'all. It's, it's, it's when somebody worships God so much that you just worship with them. Like, that's worship leading. And, and you know, this is my confession, y'all, that I knew I couldn't preach that whole psalm because it's so big. But I love that psalm so much, and I was like, maybe if I just broke it up into parts and we read it, you know, that we would get a little bit of it. And so when y'all come up here and y'all start sharing what God's showing you from it, it's like, man, that's better than me preaching a sermon. So I just feel like God is already moving in our service so much, and I've just been so blessed. So I hope this blesses you. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's going to be in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, and it starts in verse 15. So Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church, and if he really refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I say again to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not tell you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they had greatly distressed and went and reported their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay his debt. So also my Father in heaven will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. The quality of mercy is not stained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed, blessed him that gives and him that takes. Tis the mightiest in the mighty becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe in majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this scepted way. It's enthroned in the hearts of king, an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. William Shakespeare, the merchant of Venice, 
and mercy, justice, and forgiveness all go hand in hand in our Savior. Yet you might ask yourself this morning, how can I forgive like Jesus? First, we must embrace an attitude of forgiveness. Embracing forgiveness is really about embracing an attitude, an atmosphere, or environment of forgiving. It's especially important with the idea of church discipline. You see, in this text, Jesus gives us much-needed advice on how we should deal with conflict between believers, specifically in the church. He tells his followers that they need to stay humble, but stand up for the right thing. So admit your faults, but stand up for what's right. Jesus begins by saying, when a brother sins against you, you need to go find them one-on-one and have a conversation. If another Christian's offended you or hurt you or done something that bothers you in any way, talk to them about it. You know, most church conflicts are actually handled at this level, or I should say they can be handled at this level. But so many of us refuse to have an uncomfortable conversation that it festers and grows. They're unwilling or unable to speak one-on-one, and they think on it. And I've seen church conflict in churches handled really well and really poorly. In one church that I was a member, there was a man who had an affair with a woman in the church, and they had a child. And this woman was barely a woman. And he left his wife, and he moved in with that young lady. And that little girl grew up to be a a young woman herself, and she joined the church and started working for the church. Now, at this point, over 20 years had passed, and no church discipline had been done in any way, shape, or form. And a hurricane came to New Orleans and devastated the preschool in that area. And so the church's preschool had so few kids going to it that they were losing as much as $20,000 a month. So after much deliberation, a vote was called. And people came in the church that night that hadn't been members of that church for 20, 30, or 40 years. Well, technically they were still on the rolls, so they were members, but they hadn't come in the church and what happens is what happens so many times in a lot of these church conflicts. You know, with, with some church conflicts, there's no right and wrong, right? What color do we make the stage? Uh, what cushions should we have in the pews? That's not a right or wrong answer. That's a flavor of the month, right? But most big church conflicts, there's the humble people of God and there's the other side. And what happened was somebody humble tried to speak to somebody else and a person who had left a faith and left his wife, and left his family, ended up fistfighting with one of the deacons because 20 or 30 years earlier, a one-on-one conversation hadn't happened. And that is what Jesus is talking about. He says when there's a problem, you've got to sit down with somebody one-on-one. And if they don't listen, then maybe two or three of y'all need to go and talk to them. And listen, the purpose of having the conversation is not to prove anybody wrong, but it's to restore the lost brother. But if you refuse when we try to restore this friendship then we're told to treat them like unbelievers. So he says you've got to stand up for what's right and you've got to be humble. And in this section, what Jesus is actually saying is that taking a stand is just as important as being humble. Because if we don't have both of those in a church conflict situation, the bullies are going to outweigh the humble people of God or the people who are so convinced of their own ideas, they're going to be prideful or arrogant about them. You need both. You need to be humble and you need to be courageous. Just this week, I was writing this, and I was like, Lord, I don't want to say this. And some missionaries, friends of mine, contacted me, and I found out that they were dealing with a situation just like this, that they didn't want to seem like bad bosses to other missionaries. So, uh, so, so they were really gracious when they sat down and talked to them. But these people were spreading lies about them. They were not listening to them when they were told what to do. 
and all kinds of consequences came out of this. And I realized something. Almost always the people who need to be humble are the people who are talking too much, right? And almost always the people who need to talk more are the people who are humbly trying to be quiet. And God just showed me that many times if we're going to lovingly confront somebody, we need both. We need humility and we need boldness. A pastor once talked to a young man who was struggling on a train and he said, I bet you that you could stay with the Lord if you tried. And the man said, I don't know. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know if I could do it. And he said, what? If I could balance this pen on my Bible, would you do it? He said, well, sure, whatever. So the train's bouncing. He takes his Bible like this, you know, and he, um, he takes his pen. He puts it on top of there, and he balances it, but he doesn't let go. And the man says, well, you're cheating. And the pastor said, I'm not cheating. You think you can stay with the Lord without holding on to him? We ask ourselves, how are we going to make it in church conflict? You go, I don't want to say a thing that's rude, or I don't want to stand up in the wrong way, or I don't want to be quiet when I might be right. The only way you do it is by connecting to the Lord. You see, Christians cannot stand tests of courage without Christ. The spirit and work of Jesus in us. When we stand up for the things of the Lord, uh, while at the same time remaining humble, it is a reflection of Christ's character and his work in us. It's a balance that we're supposed to have that should set the Christian church apart. Not that we're afraid to speak and not that we're bullies to each other. Both attitudes are actually anti-biblical and contrary to this text. Jesus needs followers who are going to be humble and bold so that if conflict arises, it can be solved in a godly manner. And then Jesus says this. If you don't understand this, listen. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. And what is released on earth is released in heaven. I can't tell you how many preachers I heard misuse these verses. What is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about conflict in the church. Jesus says, if you do this, if you're bold when I need you to be bold, and you're kind when I need you to be kind, and you're humble when I need you to be humble, and you work those things together in your heart, I'm right there with you. If two of you or more agree in, in my name, before the Father, I'm right there with you. As much evil or difficult or hard fought your issue in the church might be, I am there with you. And how do we know this is an issue of church discipline between believers? Because Peter asked that question that we all want to know. How many times do I have to forgive my brother in Christ? How many times do I have to forgive my sister in Christ? Is it two or three or four? And so Peter says seven because he's being godly. Because the Jewish standard at the time was three. See, they, they thought three strikes are out, right? Like if you are given that many chances and you're still doing it, it means you're not repentant and you're still sinning. And so Peter goes, I'm going to double that and add one more because if God rested in seven days, maybe that's the holy answer, right? And then Jesus flips it on his head and he goes, no, you're not supposed to forgive a regular amount, but a ridiculous, unheard of, unlimited amount. Jesus, he wants the forgiveness of his followers to mirror his forgiveness. That's what he's really saying. He wants to know how many times we're going to forgive people. He says, look at brothers and sisters and families. Y'all forgive each other of all kinds of crazy nonsense, okay? And that's the level of forgiveness you need to have, just like a family. Listen, we all have a level of forgiveness that we're comfortable with. And for you, I don't know what that number is, right? For us, it's probably not three, okay? We could probably say seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, I'm I'm somewhere around there. But if you do it that 12th time, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm going to forgive you. 
But Jesus says, whatever it takes. Whatever number you have in your heart, I want you to multiply that times infinity. I want you to forgive an uncomfortable amount. And that is how you forgive like Jesus. But how else do you forgive like Jesus? Second, it's by seeking forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that we should just expect people to grant us. If we really want to live a life of humble forgiveness, then we have to seek it. And Jesus just got finished telling us, Christians, if you're in conflict with each other, then talk one-on-one. Take two or three witnesses and then bring them before the church. And if that doesn't work, then treat them like unbelievers because that's who they are. Because if you're brought before the Lord and you see that there are other Christians that are saying something's not right with your attitude and you're not willing to check it, then there's some demonic forces at work. But how many times do I forgive that person where the demonic forces are at work? The kingdom of heaven is like this. Story time. This, this is what it looks like when God's present. When you hear the kingdom of God, what he really means is if God was king, right? If God was president, if God was prime minister, if God was your boss, one day he wanted to call his accounts in. You know, there's a finality to that language. He's closing the books. It's a financial term. So God wants to balance those books, and he finds that somebody owes him an astronomical amount of money. 10,000 talents would have been something like 300 tons of silver. But an exact amount probably doesn't figure, because if we equate for changes in inflation... He's probably owed somewhere from four to a hundred billion dollars. But again, an exact amount is not intended here because what Jesus actually does is he uses the highest Greek number, which is 10,000, and he uses the highest denomination that they have, talent. It'd be like me saying today that he owed zillions and zillions of dollars. So the servant couldn't pay it. So the king did what was right under the law. The only way he was going to collect anything from this man is if he enslaved him and his family and tried to get as much as he could from those generations of kids that were alive while he was still there. In 1913, a British high court ruled that gambling debts could be passed on to another generation. So a man who owed $15,000 before he died, his children and grandchildren were required to pay down that debt. Debt can be a heavy burden. It can be taxing, and it can also be deadly. You see, Adam was the first to ever sin and introduce the concept of sin to the world. Nothing he could do could ever repay that huge debt. No animal he sacrificed, no prayer he prayed would ever grant him the forgiveness of God. I want you to think about it. Because he didn't just sin and bring sin to the world. But by him, every evil thing that has ever happened on the face of the earth, he's partially responsible for. How can he find forgiveness? He couldn't. But God loved him anyway. And God forgave him anyway. He couldn't earn his way to forgiveness. There's nothing he could do. But God gave him food. God gave him clothes. God loved him and cared for him. And in Jesus, we find the antidote to our sin debt. For each and every one of us is born a slave to sin and bondage to our flesh. But in Christ, we find our hope, our salvation, our forgiveness, our freedom Our God, so the man who owed the great debt, fell on his knees before the king, begging him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. He's lying. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Will you? I've seen how massive your spiritual debt is. I've seen your bank account. Your checks are going to bounce. There's no possible way that you can pay all that you owe. And the master had pity on the servant. 
Oh, what sweet words are those? Forgive in Greek, it means to leave behind and move on. I wish that we could all taste the sweetness and compassionate forgiveness and the mercy and grace of our God that when we go from the highest of the high, from the lowest of the low, He calls to us and gives us those wonderful words. You are released from your debt. And I have paid for you. This man's joy would have been immense, intense, unrestrained and unrestricted. It would have been clear to all who saw it. Imagine for a moment you are a servant. You are distressed. You are depressed. You are in debt and you're filled with fear. And you're kneeling before the king. And with tears running down your face, you're begging for forgiveness and help and hope. And there at your most vulnerable moment... When fear and worry and uncertainty threaten to overwhelm you, he forgives you. In 1982, President Ronald Reagan had a botched assassination attempt from John Hinckley. And as he underwent surgery to recovery, his daughter, Patty Davis, said she saw God work while her dad was recovering. She says this, I give endless prayers of thanks to whatever angels circled my father because a devastator bullet miraculously did not explode and was found a quarter of an inch from his heart. The next day, my father said that he knew his physical healing was directly dependent on his ability to forgive John Hinckley. By showing me that forgiveness is the key to everything, including physical health and healing, he gave me an example of Christ-like thinking. The same grace of God that calls us, protects us, and heals us, asks us to forgive those who hurt us the most. Booker T. Washington was one of America's greatest black leaders, but he wrestled with unforgiveness for years. These are his words. When I saw the injuries and insults hurled against my people, I grew up to hate white men. I hated them until my soul dried out. Then I took my hatred to Jesus Christ. And he took the hatred out of my heart. He showed me how to forgive and how to love white men. This man, who was born as the last generation to be enslaved, said that he loved white men. No matter what we suffer, no matter what happens to us, there is always an opportunity at one moment to look up at the foot of the cross and say to Jesus, I don't know how to do it, Lord, but I need your strength. And that's what God's calling us to. You ever watch Dave Ramsey? Do you know that Dave Ramsey's got videos with 200,000, half a million, a million views? And they're these things where people come on and they give their debt testimony. And they say, my wife and my husband, we've been in debt, you know, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, half a million, a million, two million, three million dollars. And we worked for five, ten, fifteen, twenty years and we have paid down our debt. We have paid off the mortgage to our house and then there, there comes a time at the end of these videos. And they go, we're debt free! It's a debt free screen. And these videos have so many views. And I sat there thinking this week, that's what our attitude should be to Jesus. We have a hope that never disappoints. A hope that never runs out. A hope that through and by and for our forgiveness of our debts is given. But how do you forgive like Jesus? Listen, you have to grant forgiveness. This is the hard part. 
one of the keys to living a life of forgiveness is forgiving other people that sin against us. Forgiveness is one of those things that we want when we mess up. Whether we deserve it or not, we want to be released. We want it and don't always get it. But if you want forgiveness, to forgive like Jesus, as you're going to see, you have to grant forgiveness to other people. In Jesus, we have a forgiveness that we don't deserve. You know, just this week, I was uh, dropping off my car at Ashley's place for them to work on it. And uh, the way he treated me and how helpful he was and my bill at the end, let me just tell you, I didn't deserve it. That's God's forgiveness. That's God's grace in our lives. So fresh from his debt-free scream, this servant walks out of the palace, and he's on his way home to tell his wife what happened. He can't text her. He can't send a messenger. He's got no money. He's on his way to tell his wife what happened. And as he turns around the corner, he sees somebody that owes him $17,000. And he grabs him, and he chokes him, and he says, Pay me what you owe! There's no forgiveness There's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no generosity of spirit or presence of mind. Just angry demands of what is owed. So this servant falls on his feet in front of his fellow servants. And he says almost the same thing the first servant said. He says, I'll pay you back. Just give me time. Only this guy's not lying because it's not that much money. The first servant is having none of it. Put him in the dungeon. How's he going to pay back when he's in jail? He's not. That's the point. You see, debtor's prison was a terrible thing in the ancient world. Even in Great Britain, it was still a thing when the colonies were being established. And as we wrote our founding documents of our country, we made sure to include provisions, no debtor's prison. Because debtor's prison had devastating effects. You're put in prison, levied with fees, and given no ability to pay anything back. It would devastate not just you, but your generations of children that would come after you. We got rid of that when we established this country because it had widespread evil effects. But in our hearts, we put people in debtor's prison all the time. You say, Josh, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said to me. You don't know how they treated me. You don't know how many times I've already forgiven them. They are out. We're so angry. We're so bitter. And we throw people in these prisons in our hearts and say they have no chance of ever getting out. We make a decision about them. They are selfish. They are evil. They are wrong. And we say in our hearts, I will never forgive you. But what we're really doing is we're putting ourselves in bondage. We're putting ourselves in bondage to anger and unforgiveness and arrogance. And we decide that these other people are not worth our trouble. And we write them off as fellow human beings. Everybody else saw what happened. This man who was forgiven much did not love much. And this guy who owed billions was mad at somebody for thousands. Sound familiar? Now this is what we do as Christians. We have been forgiven this great debt by our Lord and Savior of billions and billions of dollars. And we hold people hostage for pennies. And I'm not saying you blindly trust people, but you forgive them. Listen, I love Judah so much. He's my little buddy. okay. But when he's having a temper tantrum and he sits on my lap, he's got this horrible habit. You can ask Anna. He will hugbutt us as hard as he can. And I'm telling you, he has caught me in my chin. He has broken my tooth. You know, not really. okay. But it felt like it. He's made us spit or bleed blood from our noses or our mouths. He's like an MMA fighter, this little boy. So you know what? I love him and I forgive him, but I don't trust him. 
when he's sitting on my lap and he's having a fit, I hold him a little bit further away. I don't lean in and give him a kiss on the head. That's dumb. Okay? Listen, you do not have to trust people that have hurt you. Okay? We have people probably in this room that have suffered from sexual abuse or emotional abuse or psychological abuse. And I want you to know that Jesus is not saying forgive and forget. Listen to N.T. Wright. This is what he said. The key thing here is not that you should swallow all resentment and forgive and forget as if nothing happened. Instead, the key is never giving up on making forgiveness and reconciliation your goal. When conflict happens, forgiveness, not revenge, must be our consideration. No, Jesus is not telling you to trust them. He's telling you to forgive them. He's telling you to break free from your bondage to being angry at them. We must make a decision today to escape the bondage of unforgiveness and anger. Choose to take our life back. Live for ourselves and for the Lord. Some of you are angry at people who have been dead for decades. Because a decision to forgive is a decision to live a healthier life. You evildoer, you ill-intentioned person, you have the audacity to throw somebody else in prison when I completely forgave you. Shouldn't you have been merciful to another person in your same position? Just like I was for you. What were you thinking? You see, every time you accuse someone, you accuse yourself. Every time you forgive someone, you take a drop of water from that bucket of everlasting forgiveness that we are granted and you drop a drip on someone else. You know the distance between our sins sometimes we think is great. (laughs) But you know the distance between murdering somebody and yelling at somebody in God's eye? It's the distance between Burlington and Pittsburgh from space. Tiny. Significant. No. Insignificant. So the king was incensed. And as he turned his servant over, he didn't put him in jail. That's not a great translation. He put him to be tortured. It's a common practice of rulers in that day. If somebody owed money and they couldn't pay and, and that you couldn't enslave them to get your money back, you would put them in and be tortured until your family could pay the ransom off. And so this is clearly a reference to eternal damnation. And Jesus is saying that these people who are walking around unforgiving, bitter, angry people who think they can claim to know me, they do not know me. Because I am a forgiving God. And if you worship me, if you have your spirit touched by God's spirit, if you have his Holy Spirit in you, you can't act that same way anymore. Because if you do, something is wrong. And instinctually we hear that story because God says, if you do this, you do not forgive your brother, then I will not forgive you. Right? We hear this and we go instinctually, I know that's right. I know that's right. But then we go right on and we hold petty things against people. You know? Listen, I'm going to tell you this right now. It may not be easy to forgive. It may not be natural to forgive. It might not be fun to forgive. It may go against every fiber of your being to forgive. But for the Christian, there is no other option but forgiveness. We don't forgive because we have to. We forgive because we're driven to by our appreciation of God, but because he has forgiven us. You see, you see, gratitude or thankfulness 
is an appreciation for what God has done for us. And that humility and that thankfulness and that gratitude is so important to God because it shows that we understand our position before Him. Because when God forgives us, it's not like a Christmas present we get from our grandparents. All Christmas morning, we've been a little brat demanding what we're going to get next. And they give it to us. It's not like getting a meal when you come home from work after you pass 10 restaurants. You know you got food at home. No. Forgiveness is like breathing. We take in the forgiveness of God. And we exhale forgiveness on others. And listen to me. If you try to hold your breath like a toddler, I'm going to take in God's forgiveness, but you can't have any... going to suffocate you're going to spiritually kill yourself you know if you try to hold in that bitterness if you try to hold in that anger if you try to hold in those feelings and not forgive somebody you are the one who suffers whether it's our capacity forgiveness or air when we breathe we are either open to forgiveness or we are not we are either living breathing spiritual creatures seeking to glorify christ or we are suffocated spiritually dead people For when God forgives us, He holds nothing back. He separates our sin as far as east from west. He chooses to forget it once it's confessed. And the stakes of our forgiveness are massive. For every human being on the face of the earth, God tells us we will receive forgiveness to the measure that we forgive others. And there was once a man who had a feud with his neighbor. And his neighbor was putting trash in the backyard. He had a great view, this guy, from his backyard. But his neighbor kept putting trash back. So he did what most of you would do. He built a fence. And every time he built that fence out a little bit longer, that neighbor put the trash a little bit later. I guess he was using it to measure it. And they were mad at each other for years and years and years. And years became decades. And then the guy who put the trash in his backyard was on his deathbed. And he asked the other neighbor to come visit him. And and he said, I need to ask for your forgiveness. It was a formal type of thing. You know, I know that we've had this problem between us and I'm dying and I just got to tell you I'm sorry. And he said, I forgive you. And they had a wonderful conversation. They talked for like an hour. And as the man with the nice view from the porch got up, he opened the door and he turned and he said, you know this forgiveness thing is over if you feel better. (laughs) He shut the door and walked out. You see, we hear that story and we think it's crazy for people to hold that kind of unforgiveness against each other. But how do we apply Jesus' lessons on forgiveness to our own lives? First, We have to humbly stand up for what's right. You know, Jesus spoke to his disciples about forgiving other Christians with a startling, uncomfortable clarity. What God needs is not a bunch of humble followers that are so introspective or inner-focused, so introverted that they never stand up for what's right. Conversely, what he does not need is a bunch of followers that are brash, that are arrogant, and that don't know when to be quiet. What God needs is humble, grace-filled people. You know, We need to be like Jesus. He didn't judge politicians, prostitutes, or pastors, but all were welcomed freely. But Jesus also turned the tables in the temple. He stood up for what was right. So the answer to solving problems of church conflict are for arrogant people to be humbled and for quiet, humble people to speak. You've got to ask yourself which one you are the next time you're in a conflict with another Christian and find a way to reprove your response. For God might be waiting for you to stand up or be quiet, but the solution to church conflict is undoubtedly his people responding with the strength of character and humble restraint of Christ. Second, 
You've got to accept his forgiveness. And I'm just going to be honest with you. This is one of the hardest things for me to do as a Christian. I, I don't accept his forgiveness easily because I know I don't deserve it. I know my problems, and I know my sin, and I don't deserve his love, and I don't deserve his mercy, and I don't deserve his grace. But guess what we all have in common? We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And guess what we all have in common? An ability to be forgiven by our God. So you hurt somebody, trust me, you have no control over whether they forgive you or not. But in Christ, who paid it all, we have an ability to be forgiven for all. Out of a sheer compassion sent from the Father, the Son came to endure the wrath that I deserve. And now we have freely an ability to remove sin's penalty. Not that we might be his slave, but his son. Forgive it, accept it, and start acting like it. And thirdly, you have to forgive more. Ask yourself this question, is there somebody that you're harboring unforgiveness to? God showed me this week there's somebody that I've been angry at for years and I didn't realize it. I want you to do this. I want you to pray and ask God to reveal to your heart who you have unresolved anger or forgiveness to. I have seen people who had affairs Forgive the spouse that had an affair. I've seen and talked to people whose sons were murdered and heard of them forgiving them. Most of us do not have that depth of forgiveness that we're dealing with in our lives. But listen, we need to forgive others. And if you say, well, how much should I forgive? Jesus has told us, I want you to forgive an uncomfortable amount. Search your heart this morning and ask, is there anyone you need to forgive? And and this is what I want you to do. Take a pen or your phone right now and make a list. Make a list of the people that you're angry at. Make a list of the people that you have unforgiveness towards. Because listen, y'all, some of you have been mad at your mom or your dad for decades for the ways they hurt you. Some of you, it's a husband or wife. Some of you, it's a friend. People have betrayed you in ways that I can't even imagine. But our standard of forgiveness is not the best person we know, but is the God that we know. Forgive your co-worker. Forgive your husband. Forgive your wife. Forgive your friend. From, for some of you, you, you might not have even thought about this person in years, but as soon as you pray, God prompts you. I need you to pray. And I'm not saying you've got to contact that person. Maybe you do and maybe you don't. That's between you and the Lord. But you need to get yourself clean this morning. Radically clean. And I'll be up here to forgive you. You need help finding that forgiveness? I'm, I'm just God's representative. I'm just God's ambassador. I'm just God's man. That's what I was praying this morning. I said, make me your man, Lord. I'm just his man here for you if you need help. But the ways we need to respond are as follows. We need to humbly stand up for what's right. We need to respond by accepting his forgiveness. Not just following Christ, but accepting his forgiveness. And forgiving others more than you are comfortable with. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts this morning. Accepting your forgiveness and giving it to others is so hard. 
But we need it, Lord. I need it, Lord. Each and every one of us in this room, God, we can't do it without you. Only your spirit and your purpose and your power driven into us can do that work that we hope for. And in you we find refuge and in you we find strength and hope and help for another day, oh God. And today we come before you and say that we have anger and resentment and unforgiveness in our hearts, Heavenly Father. And we lay them down at the feet of the cross and we look up at you, my Savior and my God, and we say, help us. Help us to walk as Christians should walk and live as Christians should live. Stir in us this morning how to forgive as you have instructed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Jackson, would you lead us in benediction, please?